and welcome to the back-to-back podcast on the Athletic Podcast Network. This is Dave DeFore, and I'm joined by Seth Partnow, as usual. We brought back Drs. Batazzi and Benny to sort of give us an update. Three weeks later, um, obviously the world is still dealing with COVID-19, and we just kind of wanted to touch base and take a step back and, and see where we're at. First of all, Dr. Benny, Dr. Batazzi, are you guys doing well? Yes, uh-huh. I'm doing well. Yes, I'm I'm healthy and well. Uh, everybody in the household is healthy and well. Everybody in my family, thank God, knock on wood, is uh, healthy and well. So we're we're doing fine. All right, Dr. Benny, uh, you are the epidemiologist. What should we be doing right now in this process? Yeah, so just to take a step back and kind of talk about where we are. Um, cases are increasing uh, in the U.S. Uh, it's really hard to know whether or how much of it is newly developing cases, of which there are certainly some, and how much of it is uh, we are discovering more cases because we've ramped up our testing, which is certainly another piece of it. Uh, lagging behind that somewhat, because if you think about the process of getting COVID-19, if the worst ends up happening, the process is uh, you get sick, you test positive, you go to the hospital and you either recover or you unfortunately die. So what we're seeing is sharp increases in cases, sharp increases in hospitalizations a little bit behind that, sharp increases in deaths, particularly in uh, in New York and uh, the surrounding areas. So we're on the upswing. Uh, we are. I do not think that we are at the peak of this yet. So we should not be expecting, we should expect to see things continue to rise for probably the next several weeks uh, before we crest and start to come back down on the other side of the wave, though that's really hard to know, uh, again, particularly due to our lack of testing. So what should we be doing right now? Right now, and you're starting to hear this message more and more from governors, uh, from the federal government, is to stay at home as much as possible. What we need to do is we need to continue uh, these measures of social distancing. That means uh, staying at home, only going out when it's absolutely necessary. Uh, ideally, target about once a week if you have to go out for groceries or the pharmacy uh, or something like that. Uh, if you are sick, if you have any symptoms or you've been in contact with a confirmed positive case or just any healthcare provider has told you to stay home, stay home completely. Ask a friend or family member to bring you anything you need and ideally uh, don't come inside your home. So we're still trying to uh, slow the spread and get a handle on on the uh, pandemic. That's that's where we're at right now. From a, a question, obviously the uh, I'm in, in touch, interact with a lot of people who are are viewing this from kind of a data forward perspective, and I think the the growing consensus is is that we just don't have very good data. I think 538 did a really uh, smart piece earlier this week about why they haven't built like an infection model just based on on the fact that like the like the parameters of the population the disease uh transmissibility all that are just so unknown that that any predictions they come up with would be would be worthless one of the particular questions i've had or a lot of people have had in that area is there's sort of a debate on these models between showing the growth rates on a on a just a a log scale an exponential scale versus kind of a, an absolute number scale do you have any any thoughts on that? And for listeners who aren't necessarily uh, familiar with log scale, can you explain A, what that is and B, why it's useful in this context? Ooh, explain a log scale without being able to show it. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. So if you think about a normal graph, 
and you think about, say, the y-axis on the graph, you might have a tick mark at zero. Okay, it might start at zero if you're not uh, one of the worst people on earth and you don't start your y-axis at zero. We're going to assume you're a good person. You start it there. Then the next tick mark might be at one, then two, then three, four, five, et cetera, et cetera. A log scale increases by uh, exponents of 10. Uh, you would start at zero and then you go to one, then 10, then 100, then 1,000, split out uh, even distance wise. So if you have exponential growth, like in an epidemic, meaning that uh, if everybody gives the disease to, say, three other people, and that's probably a little higher than it really is. I'm just rounding up for simplicity's sake. If you're not socially distancing and everybody gives it to three other people, you go from one case to three cases to nine cases to 27 cases. If you plot that against a logarithmic y axis, you will see essentially a straight line uh, rather than a, a curve that's increasing faster and faster and faster and faster. So I actually don't have strong preferences between those two. I think that that there are a lot of data viz uh, reasons and data visualization specialists who say the log scale is easier for us to process because we can look at and compare straight lines uh, rather than comparing curved lines, which is a little trickier. I have some concerns about people's ability to interpret uh, a logarithmic Y scale because you're not used to the Y axis going up faster and faster and faster as you look up. You're used to one distance, meaning one like constant difference in numbers. Um, so there's pluses and minuses to that. But I, I trust the data visualization experts to uh, to show those. But but the key difference is if you have exponential growth like we do right now, meaning cases are increasing faster and faster and faster and faster, in a non-log graph, just a regular graph, you'll see a curve going up and up and up and up and up like a roller coaster. Uh, whereas with a logarithmic scale, you'll see a, more of a straight line. Sure. So uh, I, I guess since we're most concerned about or the kind of the, the, the first indicator is going to be sort of a a, a lowering rate of change. So it's kind of a second derivative and that's easier mm -hmm. to show on a, on a log scale. Is that? Yep. Okay. Yep. That's, that's certainly one of the, one of the good reasons for a log scale is you can see it's also really easy. Like if you've seen the financial times graph to show what cases doubling every two days looks like versus every three right. days versus every seven days. So there's a lot of benefits uh, in terms of being able to depict those things as straighter lines and to be able to depict um, when the, the curve is starting to flatten. Okay. And, and, and if I may add to that, um, you know, again, it's still, however, a, a, a predictive model, correct? I mean, it's, it's, so it's based on the, the assumptions that you put into this um, logarithmic, you know, I guess, uh, uh, charting that you do, you know, a little bit, again, like when we see, for instance, you know, how a hurricane is going to, you know, whether it's going to take this route or that route. I mean, at the end of the day, mathematically, I guess, it's a little bit more uh, stronger because, again, you, you can predict based on if the transmission rate of this virus is from one person, you can transmit it to every four people you know, then you can predict how that, you know, in that logarithmic scale, you know, you will see it. But at the end of the day, you know, you, you're taking numbers that are also an average. And there may be some people that can transmit it more widely, because again, it's, it may also be dependent on how much virus that you are, um, tr you know, kind of like transmitting. Like, for example, if you look at someone who is working in these hospitals, where there's clearly a lot more concentration of infected individuals is probably already, you know, all uh, in a single location, 
the the curves probably are very different than when you just look at the general population outside. So it also has to be balanced be, based on when you're looking at these that are generalized for an entire city, community, or whether you're even projecting the logarithmic scale when you are, you know, narrowing the location. So, you know, you, you have to be, of course, cautious when I, I think Dr. Bini mentioned is like, you know, you have to know how to interpret the information and not just, you know, assume that you understand because the, the whatever assumption is being used in creating the the curve or the straight line, of course, may different depending on what, what you're really trying to look at. And this is yeah, the importance of the social distancing and the physical distancing. Correct, right. And again, you know, I think right now we're seeing that we have some very difficult scenarios in, in our health systems because, of course, that's where you, are, of course, see the, 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 the real situation of the how the cases are, are, you know, the severe cases are. And then, again, you then do the same exercise outside when, again, you're also bringing in those populations that are asymptomatic and therefore you don't really see. And when you create these curves of transmission, people maybe don't relate to it uh, and they don't, they don't actually really understand why me that I am, I'm not sick, even if I'm outside, you know, how, how can this happen? And I think that's where people are having a hard time of why it is so important to keep that distancing and keep that physical and social distancing, even if you don't think that it's really, how is it happening? Because you don't actually see it with your eyes and you, you don't have this perception that you're sick. Yeah. And again, you know, the idea is to flatten the curve to make sure that our healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed. And uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, I gave an analogy for that last time. But I also want to emphasize that, that really the overarching goal of social distancing is to keep it up so that we can slow new cases down to just a few at a time. Because if we if we only have a few new cases at a time, and I use a few loosely, I mean, we'd still be talking probably a few hundred at minimum. That's something that our public health system and medical system is more equipped to deal with than what we have right now. So you could move into something called suppression. What we're doing right now is called mitigation, which is basically trying to to mitigate uh, how much the virus is spreading with really broad-based measures. We want to get to the point where we're doing something called suppression, which is um, you know identifying individual cases and really keeping the uh, the virus and the number of new cases suppressed as low as we possibly can. So uh, speaking of number of cases, that's a that's a I'm, I'm glad you ended there because that's that's the next question I wanted to ask is we've seen a lot of, of I don't know if it's if somewhere between reporting, speculation, uh, and data analysis suggesting that case counts and things like that have been uh, have been uh, underreported in in various regions, and uh, I just wanted wanted your your thoughts on that. I think there's no question uh, cases are being underreported. Uh, you know, you've certainly got the issue in China. I've seen some some claims that seem fairly credible that they are uh, they have not and are not uh, reporting all cases and deaths uh, from COVID nineteen, both in Wuhan and elsewhere. A lack of testing in many places, especially in the early stages, including in the United States, means, of course, uh, we have not reported anywhere near uh, every case that we have actually had. 
I saw a tweet going semi-viral yesterday that claimed that uh, that we are probably overestimating uh, the number of COVID-19 deaths because we're saying, well, if you had COVID-19 and you died, uh, regardless of all your underlying comorbidities, uh, you know, we counted you as a COVID-19 death. And well, that's not fair. Well, okay. Uh, you know, that's that's always a problem when we are trying to determine a cause of death. Uh, I think if people sat down and and really thought about it. It's really hard to determine what a cause of death actually is day to day. Uh, My favorite example is a cancer patient who is undergoing chemotherapy uh, that suppresses their immune system and they catch bacterial pneumonia and they die. What killed them? What was the cause of death? Was it the pneumonia? Was it the chemotherapy? Was it their cancer? I think there are good arguments for all three of those as a cause of death. If you think of a cause of death as something that if it had not happened, the person would not have died, right? That patient wouldn't have died if they hadn't gotten pneumonia. That patient wouldn't have gotten the pneumonia if they hadn't been on chemotherapy. And the patient wouldn't have been on chemotherapy if they didn't have cancer. So what's the cause? The other thing that I want to say to that is we're also probably undercounting cases because we're probably not even now managing to test uh, every single person uh, who has COVID-19, even uh, in the hospitals. There's the risk that we're undercounting folks. So I think to say that, oh, you know, we're we're overcounting some folks, therefore uh, the estimates of deaths are exaggerated, I, I think is frankly ridiculous. If well, anything, we're probably underestimating. And a lot of this is bad faith arguing anyway, because, you know, they're there are the people who wanted to say that we were all being chicken little when we were worried about this and they just can't. They're trying to save face. Speaking yeah. of, why can't we just rip the Band-Aid off, as some politicians have suggested, including the lieutenant governor of the state I live in? Huh. Why, is that, yeah. a, why is that a bad idea? <laughs> well, well, I mean, you, you can't really rip a Band-Aid because uh, first and foremost, we do have to indeed prevent that those who have underlying uh, diseases and with, you know, the analogy that Dr. Binney said is like, you know, the fact that that they will eventually get exposed to COVID-19 will trigger that, that fact that because they have these underlying conditions, they're going to end up dying when they wouldn't have, right? Because maybe they were, they they were already being controlled by some of these diseases that they have, but the COVID-19 tipped the tip the, the body to the point where they couldn't, right? So you can't just, and this is why the, it's an issue of, this is a public health issue because we have to protect people from dying from when they shouldn't have because, uh, you know, you're just letting the, the letting everybody lose, right? Um, you have to remember that that's, that's the problem with this COVID-19 and the reason why we've been seeing more and more of this pulmonary phase and even the hyperinflammatory, eventually the deaths is because either they, uh, for some reason, something tri- in, in, in a percent of the populations, it happens because of some underlying reason that we of course cannot explain. But most of the times we've seen it's either old age or the fact that they have an underlying um, uh, disease uh, to it. But we wouldn't be able to know if we just ripped the bandaid and everybody goes back to normal. Uh, maybe Dr. Binney can give a, a more epidemiological uh, uh, explanation here. If I can just well, so, l- let me just focus just a little bit on this question. If we, as these people are proposing, just go back, you know what? Hey, a lot of people are going to die, but we're going to go back to normal because of the economy. 
how many people wind up dying because of this? Like, is there a range that you could point to? Right, right. So couldn't we just rip the Band-Aid off? Let's define what ripping the Band-Aid off means, first of all. That means essentially uh, releasing either now or relatively soon, like in the next couple of weeks, releasing all social distancing guidelines, sending everyone back to work, letting the virus burn its way through the population until it infects a large enough percentage that it just doesn't have anywhere to spread anymore because it's surrounded by immune people. I know this is a basketball podcast, but, uh, well, you know, just imagine an entire defense closing in on one guy, one shooter with the ball, and the entire defense closes down on him. He has nowhere to go. That's what herd immunity basically looks like once uh, the virus is done burning through the population. And it might do that in a few months. Sounds great, right? Well, you end up with one to two million dead people that way. And I think people have a really hard time concretely thinking about a number that big. So let me try and help you out with that. Let's use the upper end of the earlier uh, CDC estimates of 1.7 million uh, dead Americans, which is, you know, roughly in the range of what we think might happen if we rip the Band-Aid off. It's a little uh, towards the upper end, but it's not out of the realm of plausibility at all. That's about 570 9-11s. It is terrorists blowing up a filled-to-capacity Super Bowl and killing everyone 24 times. Think about the resources that we would dedicate to not letting another 9-11 happen. Think about the resources that we have dedicated. Think about the money that we've spent, the tax dollars that we've spent, uh, the freedoms that we've given up uh, at the airport and elsewhere in order to be able to prevent that. Think about what you would spend to prevent 570 of those because that is what we're talking about right now. And I hope that paints it in in clearer terms for folks. That's a 9-11 happening every day for the next year and a half. And those are just the COVID-19 direct deaths, not the deaths that could be prevented if ICUs aren't full of people who are infected with COVID-19. I, I think that well, that's... Well, uh, those numbers, those numbers do that. include... Well, they do include that. Well, they, they include anybody who would die from COVID-19, which includes people who would die from not having a ventilator because the health system is overwhelmed. Okay, all right. What I don't think those numbers necessarily include are deaths from, say, heart attacks or car accidents or things that our health system could normally treat that aren't COVID, uh, but that, um, you know, that we that we just don't have capacity for because all our resources are dedicated to COVID. So that uh, would would probably add some additional deaths. Yes. But how many? Uh, I don't know. OK. And, and I, if I can, I can, all, of course, add a, 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 another dimension. And we as Leaders at some level in this world, you know, being the, the, the United States of America, there's probably going to be, because once one of these countries rip these band-aids, everybody's going to want to follow and also rip their own band-aids, knowing that maybe even in their location, it's even not peaked or it's even uh, the disaster, again, of the curve of deaths, because the, imagine if our health system, it is how it looks today, I can assure you that there are many health systems that unfortunately don't even get to be close to what we think we have here as privileged country, right? Even in areas of rural or, you know, even lower, um, uh, um, I guess, social status settings. But, you know, I, again, specifically, I am worried that 
We have really not seen the devastation yet, you know, to go into countries that they can't even afford to um, even do the social distancing in the same way that we're doing. And they're already struggling with that. And eventually, if they see that somebody already is relaxing these um, social and physical distancing requests, it is really going to be not a million people dying. This is going to be really more than that globally. Okay, yeah. so let's say that we continue um, social distancing policies in the places where we have them, uh, but let's say we adopt it everywhere in the U.S., uh, that our leaders decide to listen to the experts and we all act responsibly. What's our timeline look like? Like, How do we get back to normal? Yeah, so let me just say one more thing about ripping the Band-Aid off okay. is um, this – lives versus economy uh, debate, this is a false dichotomy. It's a false choice. You think the economy won't be wrecked by a completely overwhelmed healthcare system and one to two million deaths? I mean, sure, they're going to be concentrated among older people, but you're still losing a lot of workers. Uh, The country is not just going to shrug off uh, a million and a half dead people. Uh, If you talk to most economists, they're going to say the same thing. And this is not a political thing either, by the way. Um, I haven't read the entire report, so take this with a little bit of a grain of salt. But um, the American Enterprise Institute, which is uh, a right-leaning think tank, uh, is saying stuff very similar to what we're saying in terms of um, not wanting to rip the Band-Aid off and in terms of bringing the economy back online fairly slowly. And they, uh, you know, they are very uh, pro-business, pro-growth, uh, things like that, and and they're making this argument. So I hope I hope that that may um, convince some of your listeners who may be um, a little predisposed to to not trust something um, or to not uh, take this as seriously as they might otherwise. Now, in terms of a timeline of return to normalcy, that's really hard to predict, obviously, because it requires. Uh, you know, deciding on a model that you like and and using your crystal ball. I think it's very reasonable to think that social distancing is going to need to continue for at least another couple of months, um, at least into the summer. There are some areas like Minnesota yesterday uh, announced that they were shutting down their beaches all summer. Uh, Some cities have already extended uh, shelter-in-place orders and social distancing orders uh, through late June. So it's really hard to say when exactly it's going to end because it's it's not about a time, right? I can't say do this for eight weeks and everything's going to be fine. What has to happen is cases, new cases have to slow down to a trickle. And by a trickle, I mean a manageably small enough number that our public health system can test everyone. So we have to have a ton of tests. We have to be testing a lot of people very aggressively, probably repeatedly. We have to be able to identify new cases in near real time as they occur, and we need to have the ability and the will, by the way, to isolate these people and figure out who they've been in contact with and let those contacts know and probably uh, make them isolate as well because they may be infected. If we can do that, then there's the possibility to slowly release the rest of us to live more normal lives. And I say more normal, not normal, because there are still things that are going to be a really bad idea going through uh, 
at least the rest of the year until we have a vaccine. For example, the more people you get in a room, the more danger there is. And I don't just mean a room, I mean a building. So things like sporting events with lots of fans. I hate to say it, believe me, I do. I don't know that we're going to be able to fill stadiums again before next year. Uh, Having 50 or 70,000 people in the same place is a totally different beast epidemiologically than having even 50 or 100 people in a restaurant. It's just a totally different scale of being you know, being able to be relatively sure that there's not going to be a COVID-19 case um, in that group. So, you know, that's that's what I would say. I know everybody wants a timeline. And I guess what I would say is whatever you think it's going to be, assume that it's going to be a little bit longer and be pleasantly surprised. But what we need to focus on is where we're at. How many new cases do we have? Is the hospital system overwhelmed? Do we have the tests we need? Those are the things to look at, not just, oh, Easter or Memorial Day or Fourth of July. Dr. Batazzi, is summer going to help slow the spread of the virus? More humidity, heat? Well, you know, I have to say that, unfortunately, like Dr. Beanie said, unless you don't start compiling the evidence and the data that is can pr- show some sort of uh, rational proof about this. It's hard to say, oh yeah, sure. You know, all of a sudden we're all going into summer and this virus magically is going to disappear. Most likely not, right? Because I mean, I live in Houston and true is not 110 degrees and maybe it's not at hundred percent humidity, but you know, we certainly have had, you know, out, down here in the Gulf coast, um, certainly a serious situation to the point where we're, you know, having um, locations in New Orleans and Louisiana that, you know, have the same problem as up in New York or Detroit. Again, I've been following the Latin America, uh, kind of like what's happening there, uh, and, and not even going down to like South America where they have totally flipped the um, summer winter, but, you know, in Honduras, you know, Ecuador, which theoretically we're in the tropics and, you know, the temperatures are, have been mild. I mean, they're always mild. I mean, in fact, right now it's probably, you know, uh, uh, hot already, uh, almost um, Easter hot, we call it. And clearly that's not telling us that these um certainly transmission rates or the peaks are being seen very different. Uh, So I think it's going to be ultimately a combination of factors that clearly should start by the physical distancing because that's certainly one of the best proven approaches that we think is going to clearly bring these curves down and at some level interrupt the transmission if if it's not 100%. And then, indeed, you're right, pulling this Band-Aid, not all at once, but slowly maybe doing small steps to, again, bring certain um, locations, groups, or even um, whether you live, for example, in a remote area where maybe, you know, the, the type of work that you do is not the same as in an urban a uh, very highly concentrated population area may have different approaches. Unfortunately, may not be a one cookie cutter approach for every country, every state, every city. Um, and then I think uh, uh, we've already touched a little bit on what are the other interventions and certainly um, solutions that we are we want to uh, evaluate for not only short term, but 
eventually really long term because the reality is that most likely whether it's another coronavirus or that this same virus will return later um, we are definitely going to see something uh, and and the fact that it's been so wide already this pandemic it's already giving us an indication that coronaviruses are going to be here to stay uh, and the idea is to not have these same issues over and over again. So to that end, um, there, there's a couple of different. I mean, immunity is kind of a word that's that's that that's being tossed around a lot now. First of all, what what is the evidence thus far suggest about? Uh, we see a lot of kind of studies ramping up of of people donating blood plasma and stuff like that uh, who have recovered. Um, what do we know about? You know, if you've had it and got better, are you are are you safe? Are you still infectious? Are you uh, what what is kind of what happens after someone recovers? Well, I can certainly start with that, and then ask Dr. Bini to add. So, when you certainly are um, a, a person who you have been infected and at some level already had symptoms, and arguably those are the ones who are also being diagnosed, right? You may have even people who have been infected, and you know for some reason they maintain them themselves as asymptomatic, and you would probably don't even know. But let's assume you got infected, you did get some uh, symptoms. And therefore, that already we know that either because you get you you're, you through a, one of these diagnostic tests you detected the actual virus, then there's other tests tests and techniques that detect indeed this immunity. You know, do they have antibodies circulating in your body? And that's where then they say, okay, how long do these antibodies are there to protect you? And in fact, can you take those antibodies and then give them to someone else? and either prevent somebody else to get infected or can you even reduce the severity of infection because these antibodies can also um, try to, as little as, as an army, you know, you, they can combat already the virus that is in your, in your body. So that is actually something that I, I personally believe that, you know, clearly if someone already has had the disease and clearly not progressed to a severe stage, it means that your body was able to tackle the, um, you know, the, the players, right, and, and, and block the, uh, certainly the hoop, right, you know, to throw into the, uh, um, the, the basketball hoop, right? Um, that's as much as I can do about <laughs> By the way, I'm sorry about that, but that's okay. Um, but again, so, but how long does that protection last in your own body? We don't know. It may be a few weeks. It may be actually a few months. And actually, maybe even you do have some long-term memory that tomorrow you have even a very different coronavirus and you're at some level already protected. Uh, we also don't know if you take my, my antibodies and give it to someone else you know, how much of my antibodies are they going to really work in somebody else's body to tackle that infection in somebody else's body? But to be quite honest, that is exactly the type of studies that we scientists think at this point. At least we have a lot of evidence that have, they, these things have worked in animal models. These things have even worked in other human settings. Uh, in fact, transfusional medicine is something that we also use for other things where 
uh, they're not long-term solutions, but they clearly are short-term solutions. And so that's, I think, one of the optimisms combined with physical distancing and combining certainly other strategies. And then we can talk about vaccines and, and other things and maybe even drugs. But, you know, convalescent syrup has this premise that clearly some of us have the ability to fend off this virus and therefore we must have something that did it in our bodies and that can be useful and that information can also help us design how to make a, a better vaccine how to make certainly uh, a better monoclonal therapy or other things that we are currently um, developing in our laboratories yeah so let's talk a minute about chloroquine chloroquine is uh, an anti-malarial medication that's also used for a few conditions like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis uh it's been used in those conditions uh for decades uh the president came out and said that uh, it would be a uh, that it's been shown to be a useful treatment for covid19 uh the truth is that there was some optimistic early data, then there's been a little bit of pessimistic data, other uh, trials ongoing that really should give us a good idea of whether it actually works. But the truth is right now, the data just isn't there. I, I hope it works. I'm not saying for 100% we know it doesn't, but we don't know that it does. And the other thing to think about when you're thinking about using chloroquine is there are a lot of people in this country who suffer from lupus and rheumatoid arthritis who need that medication. So even if chloroquine ends up being useful, my guess is it's probably not going to be prescribed to everybody with COVID-19, only the more severe cases. So only look for it if your doctor proactively prescribes it. Please don't go uh, begging to your doctor and badgering them until they give you a prescription. Please don't take it prophylactically. That is before you're infected. There's no evidence that it's going to help prevent you from becoming infected uh, with COVID-19. So please, for now, uh, trust your your doctors and your other healthcare providers and, and make sure to leave the medication for those for whom we know it works uh, unless uh, they say that you really, really need it. What is the roadmap to defeating this thing where where do we where do we wind up how do we get there am i going to get uh thrown out the window here if i say trust the process <laughs> uh no I, 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 I with you right and i think that also raises this thing that i think this is the time that people maybe now we also as scientists are doing a better job at saying look this is what we were trained to be and do and yes, it's not we're not we're not magicians that we can snap our fingers, unfortunately, and say, you know, here it is. Uh, here's the magic potion that you can drink, and you know, all of a sudden you'll be protected or you are going to be cured. But there is a process, indeed, and it's a systematic, complex but systematic process, and that is why we have some very successful vaccines that already are available for other many diseases. We have clearly many medicines that are available are successful for many other. And so that's the value of science, including diagnostics. But we need time and we need data and we need evidence. Right. So and what I meant by the process is if you're asking for a roadmap to victory, right, the, the process has basically three main components, I would argue. It has the tear down, it has the rebuild, and it has the end goal, the championship. Right now we're in the tear down. It's deeply unpleasant. This is 
the social distancing, the stay-at-home orders, uh, many people not being able to go to work, which uh, you know I completely understand. I, I don't want to gloss over the economic pain that it is causing a lot uh, of people and uh, the emotional pain, not being able to uh, go and see other loved ones, um, having to spend a lot of time at home. Uh, it's not easy. This is the stage that we're in. But the reason we're tearing it down is to be able to get the resources that we need to slow the trickle of cases down and to build up tests so that we can get to the rebuild. The rebuild stage is where we only have a few new cases. And again, I want to reemphasize that we the goal is to get to a low enough number of cases that our public health system can identify them in real time via testing. They can isolate those people so that they don't infect others. They can find their close contacts and isolate them so that they don't infect others. And we keep only having a few cases here and there. That's the rebuild with the ultimate goal being the championship. That's the vaccine. That's what's going to get us to the promised land. But that is still probably 18 months away. Uh, That's what all the experts that I talk to say. And, uh, you know, I want to take a moment here and just talk about this for a second because there's a lot of press releases out and I think they're causing a lot of confusion. There's a lot of, you know, good universities and good companies that are putting out press releases like, oh, we're ready for uh, this trial uh, of a vaccine. And people see that and they don't realize, is it in animals or is it in people? If it's in people, is it a phase one, two, or three trial? Because you actually have to get through those phases to know that you have both a safe and effective vaccine, which is really, really important. Probably the single worst thing we could do is get a vaccine that's not effective or not safe, distribute it to a bunch of people, let everybody go, and they get sick anyway. That's a horrible idea. So we have to be sure that we're doing it right. Uh, Johnson and Johnson has announced uh, September, and that got a lot of people hearing, oh, oh, maybe we'll have something by the fall. No, 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 no. They're starting human trials in September. That's what they're they're hoping to be able to do with that. It's still going to be some time after that before we know whether the vaccine works and, and can get it manufactured and distributed uh, at the scale that it needs to be. So the overarching message here is, unfortunately, nothing that I have seen has dissuaded me from still thinking that we're probably about 18 months away from a vaccine. It might be a little faster. It might be a little longer, but that's probably still a pretty good median estimate. So and then you oh. remember, too, right, that not a single one will give you the um, result that you may want. I mean, we are also going to need to target different types of populations, right? You know, maybe a vaccine that is suitable for pediatrics may not be suitable for an adult, you know, older age. I mean, as you know, even today, right, you know, we have vaccines that we don't give to children, we only give to adults, like, you know, the Shingrix vaccine, you know. Others are given uh, uh, particularly to pediatrics. So there's a lot of science behind the science of developing vaccines. Like Dr. Beanie said, you know, we're trying as much as possible to balance that speed with safety and efficacy. The bottom line is that indeed is what we believe is going to be the long term approach to get something for the you know real long term. But we need to to evaluate many in case, you know, uh, multiple may not be suitable and fail um, and not assume that just one or two are going to do the magic here. 
Um, we need to, therefore, uh, the same way with uh, uh, treatments, we have to look at a variety of uh, leads, uh, new uh, target uh, drugs, or even repurpose some of these old ones that you hear in the news that maybe chloroquine will be used, maybe not. But until we don't actually see that they're used correctly in the context of COVID-19 and that you can clearly have evidence statistically, you know, uh, uh, statistical evidence that is making, that is giving a benefit and that you're not just, you know, giving it to give it. And then in fact, you're depleting those who really need to use chloroquine um, because everybody's hoarding it for the COVID-19 because they think that they can just automedicate at their homes, right? I mean, you know, so we have to be very cautious of what we say um, of and what the promise is. The bottom line, again, is, you know, uh, the process has a very rigorous set of checks and balances. It will take time. There are things that are a lot lower hanging fruit and of shorter, um, I guess, timeline. But at the end of the day, we need to certainly work with all of them and many of them so that we can at least have the future perspective of getting something long term. So. You guys have, you, both of you have mentioned kind of the process. And I think that's a big part of for kind of the lay audience, uh, trusting the process involves understanding it a little bit. And so mm -hmm. if you could in sort of, uh, I guess, Dr. Batazzi, especially since this is, this is certainly your area, uh, if, um, if you could in, in lay terms, uh, kind of what is what are the steps that go into, you know, again, it, for a non-scientific audience, um, how does one develop a vaccine and why does it, why is, is that 18 months, you know, why, well, we need it faster. Why can't we do it faster? Um, can you, can you speak to that in, in, um, I guess five minutes or less for, for, a, for a non-technical audience? Well, yeah, I mean, indeed, uh, you know, you have to go through this process. I, I, maybe I understood that question correctly. So, yes, you have to start looking at developing vaccines with regards to the level of how you're going to produce it and the platform you're going to use. So we've, we've been hearing a lot about RNA vaccines, DNA vaccines. It, our group actually focuses on protein-based vaccines. So there's a whole ecosystem of the, the production side of vaccine, right? Because eventually you want to have it low cost, highly scalable, um, reproducible. And not only that, you can have multiple manufacturers because there's not going to ever be the need of having one manufacturer being the, the producer for the, the entire world. So that's one aspect that we're very um, concerned that we need to make sure that those who eventually can produce these vaccines can do it in the correct manner and also that it is affordable that they could you know be deployed to the population remember these outbreak type of vaccines require that you um uh, most likely give them to the government so that they can be stored and stockpiled because you don't use them unless there's an outbreak right if this disease eventually becomes a seasonal virus that then you may need to vaccinate uh, populations yearly or whatever time you need to vaccinate them, like for instance we have with our flu vaccine, then it becomes a different type of business model. Right now, if we are still are assuming that vaccines are for outbreaks where you just uh, evaluate them, have them 
ready in case there is a new outbreak, then you stockpile them and you only use them in cases of these emergencies. Um, and so that changes also who produces it, how much it costs, who's going to purchase, who's the purchaser, usually governments should be the purchasers. You know, do they have a commercial value or is it really a purely public health value? And therefore, you have to work with the systems around the world to make them accessible also to the poor people, right, that cannot afford them. So that's point A, right, the production. Then there's the question, again, of how much testing do you have to have to ensure that you have enough safety? And that requires a lot of regulatory assessments what we call the, the post-market surveillance to make sure that maybe you didn't see a safety signal in 40, 50 people, which is what is happening now. But once you start immunizing hundreds, thousands, and eventually millions of people, there's this, uh, and that's, again, back to Dr. Bini, that's, you know, they, their surveillance or their, the epidemiology of are we seeing that, you know, we, we, could, we still retain that safety profile um, and that eventually is what really is the balance, right, of production, cost, accessibility, reproducibility, and certainly eventually the safety and, you know, the profile that these vaccines have. I had not thought about this in the terms of a vaccine only being used in case of an outbreak. I guess my assumption was we would just have mass vac vaccinations when a vaccine is available. In fact, there's three types of vac types of I guess, diseases you could have in this world, right? So you have those diseases that are seasonal and therefore, yes, you want to have vaccines, which is the ones that primarily we already have and that they're licensed, that you vaccinate a, a, a small child and they're protected pretty much for life, right? Mm -hmm. Then you may have vaccines that are, again, for us in the old age, like pneumonia or, you know, certainly, um, you know, uh, the, the shingles, which is the herpes, you know, shingles vaccine. But then there's these vaccines that are also where we don't really know when these um, outbreaks are going to happen, but we need to protect our first responders or those, in fact, like, for example, the Ebola, right? You know, we're not giving the Ebola vaccine to the entire population. We're giving it only in the areas where we know there are outbreaks and the people who clearly need to have it because they live in those areas where there potentially could be an outbreak and you deploy them very quickly, and that's why you have to have stockpile them and ready to go. You can't start producing them when the outbreak already has started. Because remember, vaccines tend to be for healthy people before they can get the, um, the hit with the pathogen. And then there's the, 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 those we also consider for biodefense importance, right? You know, all these you know, people are also having their minds, you know, what happens if we have a biological, you know, potential terrorist attack, right? The, the anthrax and those kinds of scenarios. Again, they're all very different ways that you not only produce them, store them, and who do you really distribute them? You know, we, the military, for example, they probably get a lot of vaccines that you and I don't get because we're not deployed in these areas of of certainly war situations or by no means even the location where they are, they may be exposed to uh, pathogens that we don't necessarily get exposed here. So there's, you know, so again, it's a very, it's a very fascinating world. In fact, you know, and the idea is that you eventually do have all these different, a menu of different types of vaccines that 
However, you don't start creating them from scratch, but you already have them at some level developed to the point that can be readily taken out, but you don't have to start going through that process of how am I going to make it or, you know, is it safe? You know, you already have that body of evidence. Um, and you just then very rapidly can pick it up from there and then do, like Dr. Bini said, the phase twos and the phase threes and beyond. We, we talked about this at the end of the, the previous show that we did. Have any new sources of information come out of this that, that you feel are worth following, whether it's a Twitter account or uh, a website or, or, or something like that, where people can get reliable news that, that is science-based? I think I'd like to again recommend The Atlantic. I've been really impressed uh, by the coverage that they've been putting on. Uh, the New York Times, their science writing – Uh, on this has been quite good and they've put out some really interesting interactive models and some data that you can access and play around with uh, if if you're the kind of person who uh, enjoys doing that. I would advise you to maybe um, stay off the armchair epidemiology and maybe think very carefully before you you share it publicly. But if you're somebody who likes to play around with it on on your own and get a greater understanding, uh, the Times has a, a great database for that. And then uh, really the same people I would recommend following as I did before, Carl Bergstrom, CT underscore Bergstrom, uh, Mark Lipsitch, uh, Eleanor Murray, uh, also on Twitter at at Epi, E-P-I-E-L-L-I-E, that's Epi Ellie. She has a really good list uh, of people to follow to get uh, get good information. And uh, yeah, I think those are the those are the main sources that I would call out uh, specifically. Well, Dr. Benny, thank you again for, for coming back on the show. Uh, I, I think we're going to try to do these you know, once a month or so and, and just check in on, on the progress that, that we're making. Um, and you know, hopefully more good news starts to, starts to pop up. Uh, this was a little bit better, I think, than, than last week as far as the news goes. Or at least we all have a more realistic idea of, of how things are going and uh, where they need to be. Uh, so thanks again for being here. Thanks again to Dr. Patazzi. Uh, for Seth, I'm Dave DeFore, and we'll be back later on this week.